morning, Carl. How are you? I'm doing fine. Good. Uh, good to hear your voice. Wonderful. We're here to discuss your new book, A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation. That's quite a grand title. Yeah, well, that's the one. I'll hold it up to the microphone so people can see it. <laughs> uh, and uh, before we get to that, Carl, I yeah. uh, noticed that uh, you and I both celebrated birthdays recently. We're just one day off from each other. Oh, my God. I didn't realize that. Yeah, you're the sixth and, or the, you're the second, rather, and I'm the third. But I think you're a youngster. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, the follow up question there is compared to what? But yeah, uh, <laughs> right. still hanging in. Yeah, I'm the I'm the old boy of biography. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess old boy and young man are roughly synonymous. So yeah. thank you. Or, or, or for those who, who, who favor me, they might call me the good old boy of biography. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this biography business. Yeah, sure. Uh, I got into this biography business by probably the most indirect, meandering way possible. Uh, uh, writing, depending on how you count, is either a second or third career for me. Uh, I started my professional life as, uh, as an attorney uh, doing labor law cases in uh, uh, San Francisco and then later in North Carolina. Uh, in uh, you know doing work that was not particularly uh, fulfilling uh, from uh, certainly from a moral point of view, and uh, and so at a certain point, um, kind of a funny thing happened. This was around uh, 1989, I would say. Uh, I saw the Kevin Costner movie Field of Dreams, and uh, uh, and it prompted me uh, to ask myself, you know, for for your listeners who are not familiar with the movie, it's a it's about a an Iowa farmer who's in his field one day, and he hears a voice that says, "If you build it, he will come," and he has a vision that he has to build this glorious ball field in the middle of his uh, cornfield. And um, and after uh, seeing the movie, I really kind of stopped and asked myself, well, am I really building my ball field? And the answer was no. And the next question was, well, if you're not doing it now, uh, when do you intend to do it? Uh, and how much time do you really have before you uh, settle down into a life and, uh, and a lot of uh, doors start to close? And so I, uh, I then uh, applied to graduate school in English, was lucky enough to get into Columbia and um, and then um, uh, several years later, uh, when I started working where I am now at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in uh, the City University of New York, which is another long title, uh, I um, I wrote an article about um, Melville Emerson and the image of the sepulcher or something like that. And uh, and I got a call out of the blue from a literary agent. Uh, and he said, I'm my name's Peter Steinberg. I'd like to uh, explore representing you for a nonfiction book because I read your article and I liked it. And so, boy, you know, that's like Lana Turner being discovered at the drugstore, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, I said, well, I haven't really thought about it much. Uh, I'm, I'm still you know, kind of struggling in writing articles. But but he said, OK, we'll come to lunch and we'll we'll pick out. Uh, the best idea that you have. And we came away from that lunch thinking that I would write a book about uh, 19th century utopian communities 
Uh, and the first one that I started researching was um, uh, Fruitlands, uh, which was created or co-created by Bronson Alcott, the father of Louisa May Alcott. And uh, through a sort of a series of zigzags, uh, I ended up writing a dual biography of Bronson and Louisa May Alcott, in part because I saw a lot of similarities between their relationship and the relationship that I had with my own daughter. Uh, and, uh, and so the, the project kind of evolved from that. Uh, it was uh, an opportunity for me to see parenthood uh, through the lens of, uh, of uh, you know, prominent pair of uh, historical figures, uh, but also to use my own insights as a father to kind of read between the lines of the letters in the journals. Uh, and uh, as, as you know, that book uh, turned into uh, Eden's Outcasts, the story of Louisa May Alcott and her father, uh, which, um, you know, Miracle of Miracles uh, won the Pulitzer Prize and, and then really, you know, launched me as a, yeah. as a writer of biographies. Yeah, that's, that's a marvelous, marvelous story. I think that um, uh, it's, it's, it's good to he have people hear, you know, that there's, there are these lies before biography. Uh, and, and we come to this uh, task in a lot of different ways. Yes, we do. Uh, and I've never really heard your story, Carl, about... Uh, um, about how that happened for you. Uh, I don't think there are very many kids who uh, who grow up saying, "I'm going to be a biographer." You know, they yeah. I'll, I'll I'll tell my story very briefly because this is this is supposed to be about you, not sure. me. <laughs> but but uh, I went the traditional route in graduate school. Went to the University of Toronto. Uh, the last thing in the world that anyone ever really brought up at the University of Toronto was biography. It wasn't part of the curriculum. It is, usually isn't in graduate school. Right. You might read a biography as part of your studies, but uh, who would ever teach a course on biography in graduate school? It does, I guess, happen occasionally, or if there's a center for, for a biography, of course. Sure. Uh, but in general, not. Uh, and my before I had been an academic, I was an actor uh, and uh, got very interested in popular culture and uh a uh, teacher of mine in Michigan State was doing a series of biobibliographies, and uh, I had just written an article on Norman Mailer's biography of Marilyn Monroe, mm -hmm. and he asked me if I wanted to do a kind of biobibliography, essentially an essay on biography, and then cover all the other work that had been done on her in popular culture of a biographical nature. And I spent a summer uh, working on the book, and I got bored with everybody else's <laughs> accounts of Marilyn Monroe. And yeah. the reason was mainly was because of my background in acting, because I wow. saw in these biographies of Monroe, no one really talked about what did it mean to her to be an actress, yeah. and how did she prepare for her roles? They were mm -hmm. barely mm -hmm. aware of the fact that she did prepare for them, and I knew damn well she did. So anyway, that's that's uh, maybe too much already, but uh, well, I suddenly realized that biography was was even better than acting in a sense that it was inhabiting a role, but it was in a way you could play all the roles. Yeah, it's it's fascinating that you make that observation, Carl, because it has occurred to me that if there is a kind of, uh, you know, companion art form to the writing of biography in the way that you might perhaps say that poetry and music are linked, uh, I, w I would say, and I have said, that, that it's acting. 
because yeah. um, you know, acting requires you to imagine yourself into another consciousness and to examine motivations and to, uh, to you know to you know if you're doing it right to get a really deep dive understanding of of what makes your character tick. Uh, and uh, and you know, that's that's really almost identical in some ways to to what we do as as biographers. I agree, and and for me, just as acting was, biography is just absolutely thrilling. You know, it, it's just a, a wonderful uh, occupation, I guess. Yeah, and you know, it you you mentioned too uh, that biography uh, continues to be a disfavored genre uh, in the academy. Um. Uh, and uh, I, you know, you and I have, have have talked over over lunch as well as in forums like this. But um, I, you know, I, I know that that we both kind of feel that that's unfortunate, um, you know, because uh, there there is, you know, an art and a craft to biography. There's there's a poetics of biography uh, that could actually be a very rich field for criticism and investigation if anyone were to were to take it up. And, you know, the, but the, the genre is so disfavored that when, you know, I started writing Eden's Outcasts and I told people in my department, they were asking, oh, what's your tenure project going to be? Oh, I'm writing a biography. And, you know, their jaws would hit the floor. You'd hear these astonished, you know, gasps and these, you know, expressions of, of, of sympathy that, <laughs> that, that you know, that they, they really kind of thought that, that you couldn't do it. Um, and, you know, you know, one short answer to how did I get into biography is I didn't know any better. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm glad that I didn't because I, I have found that uh, that I've found a very comfortable intellectual home in the kinds of inquiries that that you and I have been talking about already today. You know, just that that investigation of character and motivation and human interaction. Uh, yeah. You know, and, you know, it gets to the point where that just becomes the way that you view the world. If you're a biographer, um, you know, I, I kind of, you know, when I was working on the early phases of a place worse than a worse place than hell, um, you know, get your own title right, John. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I was kind of tempted to write it more as kind of straight history, but then realized that at least for my particular you know, intellectual toolbox, the best, most natural way of doing it was to get into the subject matter by telling five life stories. Uh, yeah. Now we're getting into it because what I often like to say about biography is, although it certainly has elements of history in it and, and other disciplines as well, for me, and, and that's, that's why it's such a regret that biography is not, not taught as a subject in school, really, is that biography is its own form of knowledge. And that when you look at something like Fredericksburg through the characters that, that you, you're following and in a sense creating in your book, that's simply a different experience of Fredericksburg than any history book where you're just reading about the battle. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that really kind of surprised me uh, you know, when I was writing the book, but, and as you know, I describe a number of, of battles. Um, what really surprised me was realizing how kind of uninteresting 
um, straight military discussions can be. You know, here you have this life and death struggle where, you know, the future of a country is on the line, but it's so easy to lapse into the, into the sort of, you know, the, the tropes of, and then the 27th Indiana moved up 200 <laughs> yards, and, you know, uh, you know, under withering fire. Yeah, you know, and the and the cliches in um, in in military history just come at you like tidal waves. You know, under withering fire with heavy losses, a, a hail of lead. You know, all that sort of stuff. And, yeah. And so there's a challenge, strangely enough, to making you know, you know, what ought to be you know the the most horrible and most exciting. Um, of, of human activities to, to bring it to life. Yeah, abs absolutely. I, I was, I was thinking as you were describing the, the, the battles and the people involved, you know, in your book, for example, looking at the way Oliver Wendell Holmes goes into battle as, as opposed to another figure in your book, you know, Walt Whitman's brother. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting contrast. Yeah. Um, you, you've probably noticed, um, Carl, that you know, the only book that I've written thus far that deals with one principal character is my Margaret Fuller book. Right. Um, you know, my, my greater interest uh, is in uh, you know, these kinds of you know, balances or interactions or what have you. And one of the things that I really um, enjoyed about uh, the writing of this book was seeing all of these ways in which these uh, characters who very seldom actually meet um, bounce off each other and and you know, sort of highlight particular aspects of each other's experience and and inner life uh, and the one that you've mentioned is actually really pretty darn interesting because you've got Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. The Boston Brahmin, the Harvard graduate, um, who enters into the into the war, really thinking that this is going to be easy because everything in life kind of has been easy for him, yeah. um, and and he discovers quite to the contrary that that his talents as a human being are limited, that he's a much better uh, poet than a platoon leader. Uh, whereas you get somebody like Walt Whitman's uh, younger brother, George, uh, who starts the war as a buck private and rises you know, to a fairly high level um, you know, in, the, in the officer corps of the, of the Union Army because he has a different kind of intelligence you know, a, a kind, you know, and, and extraordinary courage and also uh, an incredible amount of luck. I mean, um, George does get wounded superficially at Fredericksburg, but his, um, his comrades called him the luckiest man in the Union Army because he would come through these uh, conflagrations you know, with, you know, you know, with holes shot through his uniform coat, but be untouched. Whereas poor um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, you know, it's almost like he's got a target on his back. You know, he gets he gets hit uh, in three different battles, uh, you know, always quite seriously. Um, but uh, but as we know, uh, you know, makes his way through and, and has this extraordinary second life. It's amazing that he gets through the war. I mean, you know, bullet in the neck. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. Which um, which manages, you know, as to explain for our listeners, uh, he's uh, shot through the neck at the Battle of Antietam in a part of the battlefield called the West Woods, and the bullet manages to miss everything vital. You know, it doesn't hit the spine. It doesn't hit the jugular. It doesn't hit the the trachea. It it manages to pass through him. 
um, in in such a miraculous way that he's um, you know, he's writing letters home two days later. Um, so so yeah, um, and and then you come up against also this question of is there such a thing as miracle? And for mm. Holmes, absolutely not. Because he, as a as an intellectual, you know, you know, as you know, Voltaire talks about how you know God can save one ship and drown all the others. Um, Holmes doesn't want to come to a philosophical conclusion that that says that uh, that you know he is saved by a loving God, but that that same God has maimed and destroyed virtually all of his friends. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things you're doing in your book um, so well is is there are all these level of meanings to an event uh, and filtered through, of course, these individual consciousnesses. And it, it's just so um, poignant in a way, uh, the kinds of things that Walt Whitman's brother George suffers in the war mm. and how Whitman's experience as a non-combatant, but as a nurse you know, is seeing a very different side of the war. Yeah. And then you layer that onto the fact that George never did understand what Walt was doing with his poetry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right up to the, to, the, to the very end of their lives. George just looks at leaves of grass and scratches his Yeah. Yeah, and there's this wonderful moment where George, uh, where the first edition of Leaves of Grass has come out in 1855 at the same time, I think, as uh, Longfellow's Song of Hiawatha. And um, George and uh, Whitman's mother, you know, read over or try to read over Leaves of Grass. And they just say to each other, well, if, if Hiawatha's poetry, maybe this is too, you know. <laughs> you know, it, Faulkner had three brothers. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, all, they all grew up close together in Mississippi. Mm. Uh, one of them was, was a kind of hero worship, uh, Faulkner, because Faulkner was the eldest brother and so on. But none of them were literary. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of them, Murray, wrote a memoir about growing up in Mississippi. And it's very clear that he never had a single serious conversation with William Faulkner about his writing. <laughs> Not one. Yeah, it, it's, it's the most extraordinary thing, how displaced a, a genius can be in a, in, a, in a family that can be you know, loving and competent and interesting in its own right, not, you know, and, you know, Whitman had, uh, you know, had, had siblings, siblings who, who were not competent. There were, there were all kinds of strains of mental illness, sadly, that ran through his family. But, uh, but one gets a sense that for someone like Whitman, and I presume Faulkner, although I know very little about his life story, um, part of the quest as an artist and as a human being is the search for one's real family. Yeah. And, and I think Whitman's looking for that when he goes to Washington to, uh, to tend to the, the, the wounded men. I think he's looking for it in his poetry. He's seeking some kind of reciprocity from the world, you know, trying to put himself out there and have something echoed back that gives him affirmation and that gives him something and um and and a, a a secure sense in the in the cosmos are you comfortable with the term for your book uh, group biography do you think you've written a group biography boy you know the one of the one of the real challenges carl about this book is is figuring out what pigeonhole it goes into 
and uh, in wandering around bookstores in the last few weeks and you know trying to find copies so because I go to bookstores and sign stock for them unexpectedly but um, it's it's been a little bit interesting just to see where where you know people stocking the shelves have decided to put it and it kind yeah. of ends up in historical nonfiction but uh, but nobody's really quite clear on where it's supposed to go uh, group biography might be a good two-word description but it's a little bit hard in a way to think of these people as a group group right yeah. because the only experience really that brings all of them together is the Battle of Fredericksburg um, now, interestingly enough, you know, four out of the five knew Ralph Waldo Emerson in one capacity or another, uh, the only exception being the Southerner, John Pelham. Um, but, um, but, you know, in, during the course of the book, there is actually only one face-to-face -face meeting uh, of, of two out, out of the, the five figures. And it's very much happenstance. It's uh, that um, Wendell Holmes is coming back to his regiment after having been wounded at Antietam. Uh, and, uh, and he uh, needs to entrust his luggage to someone. And who should it be but Chaplain Arthur Fuller, uh, who uh, happens to be there at that moment. And they recognize each other and they talk about uh, Margaret and, and, and so on. But, it, but otherwise, you know, all of these ships are passing in the night and uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, but in, in that sense, they are separate uh, and yet, um, one of the things that I found really um, serendipitous about the book is that uh, my choice of these five figures enables me to be at every spot on the battlefield of Fredericksburg that I want to be at. Um, you know, I've got Pelham on the on the Confederate right flank uh, early in the in the in the day's action. I've got Arthur Fuller, you know, crossing the uh, the Rappahannock River into the into the town of Fredericksburg two days earlier. I've got um, you know, Whitman's brother charging up the middle later in the day. And then I've got John Surrey, uh, who was a patient of Louisa May Alcott's. So she did her nursing at, at Georgetown, uh, taking part in the very last assault on the Confederate position. Uh, so so that this this conceit that we've talked about of narrating the battle through the eyes and personal experiences of major figures in the book comes off, I think, as being pretty seamless. Um, you know, almost as if it had been planned that way, but really, you know, it's just a stroke of luck. Has any any reviewer noticed anything like what you just said? Um, you know, they've talked, you know, kindly about uh, the ways in which I'm able to juggle the various stories. Right. Um, yeah, but there hasn't been a lot of, um, of you know, kind of, sh should I say, in-depth uh, appreciation right. of, of some of those finer points. And, so know, this podcast has just justified itself. Yeah, well, and, and <laughs> let me say, in fact, that's one of the reasons it's a joy to talk with you, because you are such a, uh, an experienced practitioner of, of the art and um, and I I always know that when one of my books finds it into your hands, you're going to see those aspects that um, that you know, that I put there on purpose. But I think for most readers, operate on a much more subliminal level. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's true. Um, I was I also thought of, and I think I mentioned this when I reviewed your book on simplycharlie.com. There, there's a certain what I would call Plutarchian element uh, 
Plutarch's parallel lives. Mm. He, he, he's not just Plutarch, you know, does does it in twos, so to speak. You're not doing it in twos exactly, although you could pair, you know, in interesting ways, um, Pelham uh, and, and, and George Whitman. There, there, there are ways in which a reader going through the book could, could see those kinds of comparisons and contrasts. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And, uh, and you know, we, we could talk about other kinds of interesting balances as well. You know, the fact that Louisa May Alcott is a tomboy and would give anything to be male so that she take yeah. part in the in the in the fighting whereas you have walt whitman who is a you know a homosexual uh who has his his own dissatisfactions with his positioning vis-a-vis -vis the gender relationships of his world um and um and you know you've got these these two very young men pelham and holmes you know um holmes uh, almost gets kicked out of Harvard and it almost doesn't care about whether he graduates or not. Whereas Pelham is at West Point as his state Alabama secedes from the Union and he does everything he can to stick around um, you know, in hopes that he will get this diploma that he has worked and sweated and fought for for five years. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm... I, one of the, as I as I've said, you know, one of the things that really pleases me about the book is all of these balances and resonances, um, and uh, I'm really grateful that that you're um, observing them. Thank you. Uh, one of the the characters, uh, people in the book uh, that fascinates me, I find so moving and poignant is John Surrey yeah. and, and the way Louis Louisa May, May Alcott takes care of him. He he starts starts out life as a young man as a blacksmith, right? Yes, he is a blacksmith. He is born and raised in um, in very Western Pennsylvania. Um, in fact, he has his blacksmith's forge in a town called Shanksville. And if the name Shanksville rings bells with anybody, it's because that's where the fourth plane hit the ground on 9-11. On right. But um, but he uh, he he grows up in you know, what's essentially a, a frontier family, um, and uh, and you know, the the early details on him are somewhat scarce. But we do know birth dates and names of siblings and parents and so on. And we also know that his family's house burned down when he was five or six years old. Uh, and so this is this is a kid who starts life with with very few advantages. He has a mother who values education, uh, and we know that because um, John is literate and he writes a good hand in the in the one surviving letter that we have of his. And also, his younger brother grows up to be a newspaper editor. So so this is this is you know this uh, fascinating family of you know, the sort of yeoman farmer who. Uh, uh, who you know, values education, but is at the same time very removed from uh, from you know, New England culture or from the uh, you know uh, more bustling life of of the nation. So one of the things that war does is it brings together people of different characters, classes, races, and yeah. so many remarkable ways. And Alcott describes him as just a. A beautiful human being. Yeah, she calls him the Prince of Patience, um, uh, you know, NTS, um, and uh, and she, you know, talks about his manliness, but also talks about his being as gentle as a woman and as innocent as a child. Uh, so he is for her kind of this confluence of all of the best aspects of 
uh, of human nature, be it masculine, feminine, or juvenile. Uh, and it's you know it's also this remarkable experience for Louise May Alcott because she grows up um, shabby genteel in uh, in the Boston area. Uh, with a family that's not wealthy because her father was something of an economic ne'er-do-well, as, as we know, but, but someone who was just immersed in culture. You know, when, uh, when Emerson lives down the road and Hawthorne's a next-door neighbor and, and you've, you've got Thoreau taking you for walks in the woods, I mean, a, a lot of that rubs off. And both she and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. go into the war with a very strong sense of cultural superiority that they really feel that they are a lot better than, than the people around them. Uh, and they both get a tremendous education in the nature of democracy and in the American people uh, because Holmes observes um, on countless occasions uh, people of, shall we say, lesser birth uh, distinguishing themselves much better on the battlefield than he is capable of. And Alcott uh, starts off looking down her nose at her fellow nurses who are somewhat more working class. But then when she falls ill in the hospital and sees how devotedly they take care of her, she also gets a, a heavy dose of, of realism and, um, and, and a deeper understanding of, of you know, the, the goodness and decency of what Sly Stone would have called everyday people. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a remarkable story. I think that's why I was really taken with Surrey's story. You must, have, you must have become aware of him through Elk. Yeah, um, Surrey was, was a, a, a figure whom all could scholars knew about because she mentions him in her journals and then also uh, she slightly fictionalizes him in the book that she writes after uh, serving as a, a an army nurse called hospital sketches but uh, but no one had any accurate information about him uh, because uh, all good herself gets the story wrong in her journals and such. She refers to Surrey as a 30-year-old Virginia blacksmith, uh, and two-thirds of that information is wrong. He was only 21. And, uh, mm. and of course, the key um, uh, you know, red herring was that she said he was from Virginia, and he was actually from a, a, a very rural county in, as I said, southwest Pennsylvania. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, even in my, uh, book on, uh, on the all cuts, uh, I, you know, just dutifully jotted down what Louisa said, who would know if she didn't. Uh, but then, yeah. but then when I was researching for, for the Fredericksburg book, I happened to run across a secondary source that mentioned a letter that had been written about a soldier that very, very closely resembled, uh, Surrey's situation that he had been, uh, wounded through the lung that he thought that he was recovering, but the wound was actually fatal. Uh, everything just perfectly fit. And I, you know, first chance I got, jumped into my car and I drove to the, um, to the source for this information, which was the uh, um, Army College at Carlisle, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and by gosh, there's a tiny uh, folder of John Surrey papers. One and and they're um, just TypeScript, but um, but and one of them was uh, was this this letter that had been uh, that had been written about him. But then there was this one letter that he had written home, uh, which uh, included 
um, the name of his commanding officer and the name of his regiment and the and the designation of his company. And from that, of course, you know, everything opened up. I was able to track down uh, family origins. I was able to uh, get, you know, as, as I've said, names of relatives, but was also able to work out to within really just a few yards uh, where he would have been on the battlefield of Fredericksburg. And it's absolutely, um, you know, it, it's tremendously sad uh, because uh, he does take part in the last uh, Union charge of the day. The sun is going down. The battle has been lost. Every Anyone with two eyes can see that this is utterly futile. And as he and his regiment are charging up toward the stone wall on this um, eminence called Marie's Heights, uh, there are wounded soldiers from previous charges grasping at boots and pant legs, begging these men not to go forward because they mm -hmm. feel that it is certain death. Uh, his regiment had never been in battle before. And they and they were only um, they were like a half year regiment, I think. And so they they were never in battle again. So their their experience of the war consisted of months of boredom and this one desperate, hopeless charge where they just get cut to pieces. Um, and that for the 133rd Pennsylvania was the Civil War. Oh, incredible, incredible. How you found How out you about, about that story is quite amazing, quite amazing too. too. Yeah, and it happens to biographers that way. You, you write about a major figure sometimes, uh, and you're certainly paying attention to the subordinate figures. Uh, but sometimes uh, there are things you should know that you don't know or that are reported inaccurately. Yes. And you find out about that later. Yeah. <laughs> All too often after you've published, right? Um, yeah, exactly. My, it's, it's, my most horrifying story about that, uh, in fact, has to do with uh, with Eden's Outcasts. Um, yeah, and you know, as as you know, I find it very important uh, to the you know, whenever I'm able to to visit the physical places that I'm talking about. To um, you know, to tr you know, you know, even though things you know, obviously landscapes get tremendously altered in in a century and a half. Um, but um, but I was in Concord, kind of doing field research for um, for Eden's Outcasts, and there were cardinals flitting around in the trees, and and I thought, mm -hmm. oh, this is going to be a neat little detail uh, for Concord, the cardinals in, in the trees, and so I mentioned it in the hardcover, and then Carl, I got an email <laughs> from a great ornithologist. <laughs> who, who kindly, maybe not so kindly, advised me that uh, cardinals did not come to Concord until the 20th century, that they were there because of climate change, and that I was, you know, a fraud and a failure for having not recognized that. So yeah, yeah. so uh, so I, yeah. I wrote him back very politely and uh, and and said, you know, thank you very much, and we'll fix it in the paperback, and and we have, and in fact, I've had uh, a. A slightly parallel experience with this book. There are just a handful of mistakes, as I've discovered from a, a very acute and attentive readers, uh, that you yep. know, that will that will be fixing the the second time around. Um, I have found that it's almost impossible uh, to convert documents into a narrative without making some suppositions and some speculations. And sometimes you're not even aware that you're speculating. It seems, you know, you're, you're just making kind of sort of a common sense link. 
And then you really have to stop from it and say, okay, would this have been true a hundred percent of the time? Um, I, I don't know if that's been your experience as well. Oh yes. Oh yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 This happened a lot. As R.G. Collingwood said in his book, The Idea of History, you become your own authority. Uh, you are the one who's who's making those connections. Uh, and uh, you have to if you're going to create some kind of narrative. Yeah. There's there's no um, no substitute for that. Yeah, because otherwise then it's just a it's a very you know dry and disjointed fact dump. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Collingwood calls it scissors and paste history when you do that. It's just a collage. Right. Yeah, and I a unit. And I've always been drawn to um, a phrase that Stacy Schiff uses a lot. I don't think it's original with her, but she describes a biographer as a novelist under oath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've forgotten who said that. She does. She does take it from somebody, but I've I've forgotten. So it might as well be her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and but it's it's very true because the the work that we're doing I think at its best is novelistic and it is about storytelling and um, and it and there's this kind of alchemy that takes place between author and subject as well and you know there are there are reasons why um, you know Boswell's Johnson is a lot different from uh, from Walter Jackson Bates Johnson. You know, yes. it's, it's, it depends on opportunity to perceive. It depends on one's own uh, powers of perception and character and, and the things that you care about. Um, and and that's, that's why biography is never going to be a dead art uh, because, you know, people, and, you know, someone who's not really familiar with the, with the genre might say, well, why do we need so many biographies of Lincoln? Why do we need so many biographies of Washington? Um, and one of the valid answers is that, um, that a, a character as multifaceted as, as Washington or, or Lincoln, and I'm, I'm going to use a sort of odd um, uh, metaphor here or a simile, but uh, but they're sort of like those mirrored disco balls that you know, that yeah. you see at, at at discotheques, you know, such that parts of them only light up if a light shines on on them from a particular angle, and every biographer shines on their subject from different angles, and so you get these different highlights, you get these different moments of flash and recognition and understanding and light. Um, because of the uh, the subjectivity of of the biographer, and obviously we can't go overboard with our subjectivity. You know, we 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 can't. Um, you know, we're never the star of the show, and and we never ought to be as as writers. Um, you know, I you know I don't make too many biblical references, but there's uh, there's a, a moment in the New Testament uh, where John the Baptist says, you know, for for Christ to become greater, I have to become lesser. And, and that's true of us with, with our subjects, that, that we have a duty to make ourselves lesser uh, so that they may shine forth. But at the same time, uh, it is our, um, it, it, our personalities do enter the work, um, but, but we have to do it in a way that's very self-aware and that always assigns primacy to the person being written about rather than the person writing. Well, John, you've given me two more topics for future podcasts. Oh. Uh, 
the the idea of you know you know where is the biographer in his or her work yeah. uh that's important and that the other is um uh why so many biographies of certain figures people say that all the time well you there can't you know as if as if a life is just content right. you know once you know the, the basic facts uh, there's no need to to reinvestigate mm. it uh, and you and I know for a whole variety of reasons, which now I'm going to talk Great. about in another podcast. <laughs> that's simply not true. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I I will want to hear those podcasts because um, okay. it really is worth investigating. So do you have another project, the next one? Uh, I'm taking a little bit of a, of a break now, Carl. Um, I've, I've had one book or another under contract since uh, about 2002 or 2003. And, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed by what a powerhouse you are and, and your uh, incredible, um, uh, you know, your, your incredibly prolific career. Um, but uh, I'm taking a little bit of a step back at the moment. One thing that I am uh, working on with, with a good friend is actually multi-episode teleplay of, um, of, of, of uh, Worse Place Than Hell. So we're hoping that we might ah. be able to do something with that. Um, and also, I'm starting to read around a bit uh, in the life of Voltaire, uh, because I think, you know, in this uh, particular historical moment of ours, uh, where uh, free expression is, uh, is, you know, excites suspicion uh, rather than admiration, uh, it's... I'm interested in going back to the man who said, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Um, so I'm very interested right now in kind of recapturing and, and immersing myself in enlightenment uh, consciousness. And, uh, and so there's, there's a possibility that I might write a book about uh, Voltaire, uh, maybe not cradle to grave, but maybe perhaps just mm -hmm. dealing with his uh, years involved with Frederick the Great or, or something like that. Uh, and that would again be able to uh, be a way of bringing me back into the the realm of the dual biography. You know, something about Frederick the Great and, and and Voltaire, I think, might really be pretty interesting. I think so too. And uh, I'm going to end my part of this podcast by saying I'm glad that you're still going to be cultivating your own garden. <laughs> Very well said. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, it's it's a hard um, it's a hard field to walk away from, isn't it? Yeah, yeah you yes. feel like you've yeah. said a lot, and maybe you said enough, but no, there's always there's 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 you know, the, the the waters are so deep. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. I said I was going to retire from writing another biography a couple years ago when I finished teaching, and now I'm already thinking about the next biography. So there. Ah, uh, should I ask you what that is? Yeah, I actually, it, it, uh, it, you know, I'm editor of the Hollywood Legends uh, series at University Press of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And so the book will probably be in that series. It's going to be a, a biography of someone listeners may not know. You have to be of a, think of a certain age or be a movie buff, but uh, so I am. <laughs> Ronald Coleman. Oh boy, you know that's it, it's a name that that I recognize. But if you were to ask me to name any of his movies, I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, in a way, in a sense, that's why I want to do it because, well, he was in Dodsworth to to name mm -hmm. one uh, Sinclair Lewis adaptation of a Sinclair Lewis novel. Lost Horizon uh, is another one. He was in a number of really important, most important maybe 
that some listeners might know is The Tale of Two Cities. He plays Sidney Carter, oh. character in A Tale of Two Cities. He is the epitome of the English gentleman hero. Uh-huh. Uh, and he made the transition from silent film to sound film. And he became the standard of how to act for the cinema for um, actors as diverse as Dana Andrews and Susan Hayward. Wow. And they grew, they grew up on Ronald Coleman and they learned from Ronald Coleman uh, and uh, people like Norman Mailer, believe it or not, uh, as a young kid growing up had people like Ronald Coleman as the sort of the standard of the gentleman hero. So this project is a coming together of a number of your previous uh, uh, interests as well, you know, with, that's with right. Mailer and Dana Andrews and, and, and so forth. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, and it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of neat how, how that happens too, uh, that, uh, that, you know, one keeps being drawn back to you know, some of the same connections, but in, uh, in radically new and, and stimulating ways. Yeah. It happens again and again to me. I think it happens when you, when you are a biographer and you go from project to project, cause, cause one subject suggests another, I often have people who will come up to me after I give a talk and they'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so would be a great subject for a biography. And I will say, I agree, but not my subject, yeah. simply because it's not organic. I can't, I don't just pick someone because, oh, that would be good to write yeah. about. It has to really touch a personal chord or be related to what I've already worked on in some yeah. way. And of course, there, there's got to be material there as well. Uh, because yeah. you can you can you know, want like anything you know, to yeah you know, I I thought for a while that I might want to write a book on the uh, on the French impressionist Georges Seurat, and then within a, about a week I was able to realize that well you know you didn't really leave behind any letters or journals and uh, you know and there's 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 just not enough there there, uh, and that yeah. can be tremendously disappointing. Yeah, if you were another generation of biographer, you would just make it up. Yeah, yeah. with with dialogue and everything, you bet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that used that used to be done. Now it now it would be a, a disgrace. Yeah. but yeah. yeah, and as Georges Seurat said to his mother over a pot of jam, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's, exactly. it's very true. You know, when I was researching and, and writing the John Pelham parts of the book, uh, I I was looking at some of his early biographies and you know and there's made up dialogue and it talks about him you know saying these things as he, he's, he as he's cutting into a crisp slice of bacon and you know <laughs> and guess what there's no bacon documentation yeah yeah it happens yeah it happens. sure well it's just been a pleasure john i'm really glad we decided to do this I and we'll have to do it again. I hope so, Carl. I really look forward to uh, ever having the opportunity to, to sitting down with you. It's a, it's a true, true pleasure. Thank you. Well, I'm going to say goodbye, and uh, I'll be sending you a link shortly, and everyone else, the world will soon be able to listen. Great. Thanks again, Carl.